Good morning. Uh, You can open your Bibles. Please do open your Bibles to John chapter 20, verse 19. John chapter 20, where we'll begin here in a moment in verse 19. And as you are flipping there, I invite you now to think about the four seasons, particularly to think about autumn or the fall. Every fall, a process of death and then new life begins. Every year we see it, the leaves begin to turn all their brilliant colors, the reds, the oranges, the yellows. I was once in the Smoky Mountains up on the top of, if you can call them a mountain, on the top of one of those mountains at an overlook and it's just a whole ocean of unbelievable colors. And then all those leaves fall to the ground and they leave behind them barren, empty branches. Eventually the days get shorter All the color evaporates. The sun visits us less often. We find ourselves in the dead of winter. We drive to and from work, maybe in the dark, both ways. Nothing grows. All the green things, except for the evergreens, are gone, but nothing is really growing. The birds don't show up anymore. They don't sing their songs the same way they do in the summertime. And even the people, our our neighborhood, becomes a place where it's much more difficult to see our neighbors. They're inside. We are inside. Every day more often, everything shuts down. Everything becomes gray and colorless and lifeless. After the autumn, into the winter, every year. And then sometime in the early spring, that first daffodil shoots that neon green shoot up out of the earth. It's my favorite flower, the daffodil. I love it because it means spring has returned. The birds come back, they sing their morning songs, you can hear them in the morning, it feels increasingly like spring. The trees here in Memphis, the great oak trees, start to put out their tiny little buds, and if you're like me, you know the feeling, driving down the road, and you think, are there buds on that tree? They're so small, you can't see with certainty, but indeed they're there, and after a few days, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, the trees are filling up again with life. Days get longer, The sky gets a deeper shade of bright, bright blue. We have the tulip poplars. I don't know if you know that tree. They are a small tree, but they fill up the entire, you could call it a canopy, of the tree with bright pink flowers a little smaller than your fist. Who would have thought you could fill a whole tree up with flowers, hundreds of them, and they're beautiful. They look like a giant pink flame on the top of a tree trunk. They're incredible. And we see this whole process repeat itself every year. First, the death begins in autumn, winter, a time in the tomb, and then the explosion of resurrection life every spring. Our creator has interwoven resurrection into the very fabric of creation. It's not just the seasons. What about the way that plants bear seeds? We grow tomatoes at our house. They produce the bright red fruit. They fall to the ground. The seed goes under the ground. It dies. Come next spring, what do you have? A resurrection with new life. Or maybe fertilizer. Some of you know about fertilizer. That which was associated with waste and decay, fertilizer, only serves to invigorate and to enrich and to give life. Death followed by life. Or what about the caterpillar? He custom makes his own tomb. He hand makes it and he crawls inside of it for his own death, so to speak only to emerge in a glory that outstrips the glory of the caterpillar in a way you can even describe as no comparison. Just day and night, every night, the sun slips down below the western horizon and disappears, the whole world slows down, and then some hours later, up from the eastern horizon, new life it comes, it gives warmth and light and life to all plants, resurrection life every 24 hours. We ourselves put ourselves in our beds every single night as if we were crawling for our own tombs, quiet and still, 
having the appearance of death even only the next morning to be reawakened and begin all over again. Life, resurrection, life. God, in his infinite wisdom, filled this world up with the glory of resurrection. And I don't just mean life in general, I mean resurrection life. You say, what do you mean by that? And I mean that life in and of itself is a glorious thing, but when life springs out of death, resurrection life, you have a greater glory. There's something about life that springs out of a place that had only death that screams majesty and glory and goodness and rejoicing. That brings us to our sermon text for this morning, beginning in John chapter 20, verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Let's seek God's face together in prayer. Father, you are the one who made the world and we remember now that you designed the world in such a way that there are resurrections all around us if we only had eyes to see them. And the same is true concerning your son, crucified and then risen from the dead. The certain testimony of his resurrection life contained in the scripture, if we only have eyes to see, if we only have ears to hear. And so it's that that we ask for, eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that would fill up and bubble over with worship to King Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. Well, if you consider the context of where we're picking up now in our long march through John's gospel, I wanna back up uh, just a bit to the previous chapter and just remind you really briefly that it was in that chapter, John 19, where Jesus was put to death in brutal fashion, we heard two weeks ago, at the hands of godless men. It was an unjust trial without evidence, and it was carried out by biased parties. There was a conflict of interest. They had something to gain by putting him to death, and they got away with it, in a sense. And in John's gospel, back beyond chapter 19, going back to the beginning, much has already been said about that man who hung there on the middle cross. He's already been identified throughout the gospel. In the prologue we read about the man on the middle cross that all things came into being through him. There is nothing that came into being except through that man. He had told in John chapter eight a group of religious people that if they didn't believe in him, they would die in their sins. 
Everything rises and falls with the man on the middle cross. He's twice been called in John's gospel the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That means that his death had a purpose. It was substitutionary. There was a design. He died there, that way, instead of you. And then in last week's sermon text, the first part of John 20, two of the disciples, Peter and the beloved disciple, had gone to the tomb to go see his body because they had heard news from Mary. They're trying to figure out what's going on. She's claiming to be an eyewitness that she's seen him alive, the man who died, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. But when they get there, they don't find a corpse. They just find the linen wrappings that they had wrapped Jesus up in, and they find the face cloth folded and set there in its own place. And these people are on an absolute roller coaster. Surely you can sympathize with where they're at. They had watched Jesus enter Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds roared his name and then they're on top of the mountain. As high as you can get, maybe they thought. It was finally all coming true. The world was recognizing what they had seen but then they watched as everything went south quick and he was put to death. Now they're in the valley of the shadow of death and they're all mixed up probably emotionally fragile, and then comes Mary Magdalene with this outrageous claim that she had seen him alive. He had come back from the dead. Do they dare allow themselves to believe it? Because in our sermon text, they haven't seen him yet. All they have is Mary's words, her report. If they do allow themselves to believe what she said, and then it turns out that it isn't true, can their emotionally fragile selves handle another crash or will they shatter when they get to the bottom of that fall? They've been through the ringer. But what are they supposed to do about the fact that nobody knows where the body is? And that leads to the immediate context where our sermon text unfolds. Verse 19 tells us that it was evening on the same day. That day, the first day of the week. In other words, that's resurrection evening. Mary had gone to the tomb early on Sunday morning. Our text takes place that evening. It says there in verse 19 that they were in a room with the doors shut or locked or secured, depending how you translate it. But the idea is really clear. They were trying to keep everybody out because they were scared. They were trying to get alone. They were looking for isolation and the security that they thought it could get them. They were afraid of the Jews. Why were they afraid of the Jews? Because the Jews knew the body was missing. Who's the prime suspect to take away his body and spread a lie that Jesus had risen from the dead? The people in the locked room. They're afraid, they're scared. They're afraid of the Jews. And this is a major theme in John's gospel. The blind man's parents were afraid that the Jews would put them out of the synagogue. Simon, or is it Joseph, was afraid of the Jews. Joseph of Arimathea was afraid of them, so he was only a secret disciple. And these group of men are very afraid because the Jews are apparently a very powerful people. They had just gotten away with executing an innocent man. They had just even twisted the arm of Pilate behind his back, the most powerful man in the region. They controlled him. They're afraid. They're afraid they're going to be killed. They've gotten in too deep. It's almost like you would have heard maybe of 
someone getting in too deep 60, 70 years ago with the mafia, and they don't know how to get out. They're scared. So maybe you can imagine them in the room. The text tells us it's nighttime. There's no electricity, so maybe there's candles, torches. You'd have exhausted faces. You'd have uncertainty. They didn't know what to do. Peter's there. The last thing he did when Jesus was alive was deny him vehemently, cursing and swearing, Matthew tells us. I do not know the man. So he's there. He's blown it again. Maybe they're trying to figure out what to do. Maybe they should flee Jerusalem, save their lives. Maybe they should stay. What if Mary Magdalene is telling the truth or maybe she's delusional. Maybe somebody else, like she thought, took away the body and it'll show up and they'll be shown to be fools. Their emotions have got to be running high. Somebody locks the door so that nobody can get in and they're isolated in the room. They're all alone, or they think they are. John tells us in verse 19 that the door was shut, and yet he tells us in verse 19 that Jesus, quote, came and stood in their midst. This is the man on the middle cross. This is the dead man, the crucified man. The same one that Simon and Nicodemus had carried to the grave in the garden and the whole way that they carried him there, his heart didn't beat one time. No electrons fired in his brain the whole walk to the grave. He had laid there from Friday evening until at least Sunday morning when the stone was moved. Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday midday, Saturday night, Sunday morning, dead. And the text tells us that he came Dead men don't come anywhere. He came and he stood. Dead men don't stand. He stood in their midst. The disciples wanted to be alone. And Jesus came and stood in their midst. Maybe you are like them. Maybe you want to be alone. Maybe you want to shut them out. Maybe there are things you're ashamed of. Maybe you're more interested in the world. These disciples thought they could shut out everybody Jesus had unrestricted access to them. And he has the same unrestricted access to every person in the room. But he didn't come in judgment. You'd think that he came in judgment. He did not. Look at verse 19. He came in peace. His first words when his disciples finally see him, peace be with you. He came in peace. I told you before that the disciples had a bad track record. They'd all fled in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was going to be arrested. Peter, as I said, denied Jesus three times. These men didn't have it all together. Many times they had argued when Jesus was there about who was the greatest. They really have a bad rap sheet. I mean, if they're disciples, these guys have a lot to be ashamed of. They have a lot to regret. They had disappointed Jesus. And maybe they weren't sure how he would respond much less, I mean, certainly they would also have been startled by seeing someone arrive in the room when the door was closed. They would have been scared, but in his kindness, Jesus is kind, and in his condescension, he says, peace to you, or peace be with you. Not a judgment. And on one level, this was a normal way of greeting people that these disciples would have heard a thousand times. Over and over again, they would hear it. It was a typical way to greet people, like saying salutations. 
But in this context, it means more than that. It means more than just hello. Because he even repeats the phrase down in verse 21. Peace be with you. He would told them before, peace I leave with you. I'm giving my peace with or peace to you. It means he's come not in anger, not in judgment, not in disappointment. He's come to them with goodwill. Maybe you've been in a circumstance like that. You know that you have reason to be ashamed of someone that you're going to see. And when you come to them, you don't know how they're going to respond. And then they respond with kindness that you didn't know you were going to get. And that's what they got because Jesus is kind no matter what we think of him. He came to smile on them like a father would smile on his children. Well, what is the peace that he's talking about? We live, as you know, in a psychologized world. It's all about our inner emotions and inner well-being. Maybe you don't know that you swim around like a fish in that water, but you do. And so maybe you've assumed that when he says, peace be with you, he means narrowly, emotional well-being. And I'm suggesting to you that when Jesus said these words and when John wrote this gospel, they did not live in a highly psychologized world, and that is not only what he means when he says that. When the Bible uses the word peace, they do, it, it does not, God does not only mean uh, inner tranquility, like what you would imagine that people strive after with Good things, candles and relaxation, and you can sort of envision the tranquility, uh, the emotional uh, peace that we would describe. He, he doesn't mean that. One scholar put what he does mean this way. Peace is one of the fundamental characteristics of the Messianic kingdom anticipated in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New. That sounds like something much bigger than inner tranquility. Something fundamental has changed. In other words, peace is, in this context, something like Jesus saying, everything now is going to be okay. Not just your feelings. Reality itself is fundamentally altered. He's risen from the dead, and now God is fulfilling his good and redemptive, restoring purpose through him, the Messiah. When Jesus rises from the dead, it means that all the promises of the Old Testament have held fast. God has done what he said he would do, or like Jesus said when he died on the cross, it is finished. It's, as, it's like God Almighty can stretch his hands over those disciples and say, like Jesus said in the Gospels, your sins are all forgiven. But it's more than only sins, it also is bigger than that. It's cosmic, thoroughgoing, full saturation, touches every atom in all creation, everything seen and unseen. All their sufferings will fit into God's redemptive plan. So they're afraid of the Jews. They're afraid they're going to be killed. And Jesus says, no, no, you have peace. Everything is going to be all right. The Messiah has risen from the dead. It would, be, it would be something like Jesus showing up to them. It would be something like living in a village and a foreign army shows up, you hear the horse, the horse hooves and the, 
the loud noises that they make. You hear the clanging armor, the shields and the swords, and you see them coming, and there you are, and you're more or less defenseless. And you get there, and you're afraid that your wife and kids and your whole small village are all just going to be trampled and burned and taken away. And you get there, and they smile at you, and they say, peace be with you. They've come to bless. They've not come to harm you. Jesus came to the disciples in peace. And this is one of the things that we as Christians have the most difficult time believing. We can't imagine that someone like him would come to someone like us and say, peace be with you. It can be well, it is well between you and me. And we, we have a hard time with that because we see our own shortcomings, we see our own sin, we have a guilty conscience, we know what we've done, we see the way that we fall short, we know the anxious thoughts that we think and we see these besetting sins that we have, maybe we're given to anger and frustration and we repent and repent and yet we find ourselves, shamefully enough, committing the same sin or maybe it's greed or maybe it's some sort of immorality or whatever it is but we know ourselves, at least in part, enough that it's difficult for us to imagine that someone like him would come to us and say, Peace be with you. He comes in peace. He loves us. But he does. We can't make him anything other than he is. The way that we respond changes nothing about him. And so if you're a Christian, I'm telling you on the authority of God's word today that when he comes to you, when he says your name in his mind, he doesn't say it with judgment. He says it with love. And he says over you, my peace I give to you. Peace be with you. He loves his people. He loves his people. And that's what he did for the disciples. But notice also in verse 20, he came bodily. It says he showed, him, showed them, pardon me, his hands and his side. He came bodily. It's been about 24 hours since they had pulled the nails out of his hands and out of his feet. And since the spear had been pulled out of his side... 24 is the wrong number, 36 hours or so, from Friday night to, 48 hours, from Friday night to Sunday night, 48 hours. And he shows them his hands, the wounds, and his side. And Jesus wants his disciples to get an up-close and personal look at the wounds. Why? I mean, it sounds... On one level, it sounds like something you might not want to see. We got squeamish people here. Sometimes people don't like the sight of blood. But there are reasons. There are two reasons. The first has to do with seeing those wounds would have confirmed, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus' identity. He's the man on the middle cross standing in their midst. And not just the hands. Many people were crucified, but there would have been a particularly identifying marker with the hole in his side. Remember, they didn't run through the other two men who died on the cross. They were dead, they broke their legs, but Jesus, they came to him, he was already dead, and so to make 100% certain, they rammed the spear into his body. So it would have confirmed, it's Jesus. It's the same person we hope it is. But second, it would have proven that Jesus rose bodily. Now you may not be aware, but there have been a lot of people who have denied over the last 2,000 years, that Jesus rose bodily. They've offered other explanations, like he rose only as spirit, no body, or that it was an image, some sort of mirage, 
and a number of other explanations that have been offered. I shouldn't call them explanations. Those are called heresies. Jesus showed them his hands and his side to show them that he rose bodily. He died a, he died a true human death. And he rose again bodily. Showed them the wounds to confirm his identity and to confirm that he was indeed alive from the dead. They weren't seeing things. And you can see the effect there that it had on these men. It says that they rejoiced, or in another translation, I think it might be the NIV, they were overjoyed. They were overjoyed. Remember I asked before, do they dare let themselves believe that it could be true? But now they've seen him for themselves. They've seen the wounds in his hands and in his side. And these men, they let it all go. And they believe. And he, they are overjoyed with the sight of the risen Lord. So maybe some of you have seen these videos that I've seen of uh, these children, in our day and age, children whose fathers have been deployed. They've gone overseas and the children are waiting. They have this low level anxiety that, we, that they live with because they want their dad to come home. He's in the military. And um, whether it's at a, a pep rally and the kid is surprised or dad jumps out of a, a great big Christmas present, either way, dad comes home and surprises the kid. I don't know if you've ever seen these before, but what happens to the kid every time? They're reduced to a puddle of tears on the floor because, oh, they see him. They're overjoyed and they rejoice. It's just, you ought to watch them. They're the sweetest moments in the world. When these kids see their dad, they are overcome with joy. Now think about those disciples. Their best friend, their Lord, and their eternal hope had been put to death on a cross. Not just might die deployed, actually killed. And then they see him face to face. They're totally surprised. They're not expecting to see him. They did not anticipate that he would rise from the dead or that they would see him that Sunday night. And then they do. And these men are filled with joy. Now listen to me. I know that we are in the battle. Just like the disciples, we have fears. We have anxieties. And some of our fears have come true. Loss of a loved one, disease, death, financial loss, whatever it is, the things that we're anxious about have actually come to pass. Jesus promised us that it would be this way. He said, in the world you have tribulation. All Christians for the last 2,000 years have all suffered. There's been sorrow. Suffering for now is pervasive. It's everywhere. We all share it. But something had moved these disciples who had a lot of troubles and a lot of fears from that place of fear, hiding in a room with the door locked, the bottom of, you might say, the, I'd say emotional, but the emotional place. They were not in a good place. Something had moved them to overwhelming joy. And what was it? They stood in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. It changed everything. He was alive and he was with them. And he came to them in peace. And that changed everything for them. There is no joy like standing in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. 
Many of you know that to be the case in this room this morning. You have stood there, so to speak, in prayer and known his presence. You've, with, like Paul says in Ephesians 1, the eyes of the heart seen him and rejoiced in his glory, rejoiced in his giving of kindness and peace that you don't deserve, you know it, and he still gives it, and you praise him. The wounds are all there, the suffering is all there, the loss is all there, but Jesus is there with you in the middle of all of it. He's in the wounds, in the suffering, in the loss, and in it all, he promises you his peace. Here's what he said. These things I have spoken to you, disciples, so that in me, in me, not in circumstance, in me, you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. But the Christian life isn't only about coping with life's struggles. I mentioned that peace isn't to be understood narrowly as emotional tranquility. It is that. It very much is that. The presence of Christ in suffering and sorrows will give you peace with Jesus, without a doubt, but it's more. And after no time at all, the disciples in our text are given marching orders for an epic mission. It's not only about them and their ability to cope with life. He turns them outside of themselves in verses 21 to 23. Look at verse 21. He says, as the Father sent me, I also send you. And most of you will remember that Jesus, especially in John's gospel, constantly refers to himself as the one sent by God. That phrase is crucial to understanding who Jesus is. He's sent by God. He didn't come on his own authority. God sent him. He didn't come to do his own will. He came to do the will of the Father. He didn't even speak his own words. He says, I only speak the words that the Father gave me. He didn't make up how to say things and what to say. He didn't have his own message, in other words. He had a message that he'd received and he delivered it. He was sent by the God. He's like a delegate on a mission sent by another with the authority of the other. That's his Father. He wasn't his own man. And he puts that pattern into the disciples' minds. I'm the sent one, as the Father sent me. And then he maps that pattern onto them. And he says, just like the Father sent me, so now I am sending you. Now they are to live like he lived. They are now to live as sent ones. And by extension, we, you, are to live as sent ones. But more on that in a moment. First, look who's doing the sending. Tell you what Jesus did not say. Just like the Father first sent me, now he sends you. It's not that. Jesus takes for himself in this moment the role of the sender. So with God, he's sent, but now with the disciples, he sends them. He's, he's doing what a, a prince would do who's just been enthroned. It's like he's sitting down on the royal throne, the attendant comes up and puts the crown on his head and he puts the scepter in his hand and the new king assumes command. 
He gives marching orders to his servants. He commands them. He provides what they need to carry out the mission. The king is now reigning in his glory. So he now is exercising this authority to send his disciples. That's the sender. What's the mission? There are two parts. First is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And the second is the forgiveness of sins. So first, the presence and power of the Spirit. Verse 22. I'm going to read it. Pay attention. I'm going to read it in the New American Standard translation. Quote. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So maybe you've arrived this morning, this Sunday morning, doing the remarkably encouraging thing and having read this text before you got here. And maybe you are a little bewildered by what's going on in this verse. Let me just cut to the chase. If Jesus is pouring out his spirit here in John 20, our sermon text, and it was on the same day, as I said before, that he rose from the dead. It's Sunday night, he's been resurrected 12-ish hours. If that's the case, how does this square up? What's the relationship of this text with Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost, which happened not on the same day of Jesus' resurrection, but seven weeks later? Were there two times in which the Holy Spirit was poured out? And if there were, how do they relate to each other? Are they the same? Are they different? Is one for new life in some way and then the other empowerment for ministry? Or is the text symbolic in its function? Does John 20 symbolically foreshadow Pentecost in Acts 2? Well, I'll tell you that our good friends, the commentators, have not reached a consensus on this question. They have not at all. And it is difficult to reach a firm conclusion. I'm gonna lay out some of the evidence which I find most compelling and I am asking you to put on your thinking cap. I have four points. The first, I find the most compelling of all the points. It's that it's, to me, undeniable that there's basically no effect on the disciples immediately after receiving the Holy Spirit and in the rest of John's Gospel. They don't change. There is no massive change in their lives. There's no boldness for evangelism, no fearlessness in the face of persecution, no rejoicing to have their possessions plundered. Instead, we find them down in verse 26, next week's passage, again, hiding behind locked doors. And then later in chapter 21, they go back to their daily occupation, fishing. Nothing changes. One commentator puts it this way. All this is not only a far cry from the power, joy, exuberant witness, courageous preaching, and delight in suffering, what a phrase, delight in suffering, displayed by the early Christians after Pentecost in Acts, it is no less distant from the same virtues foretold in John's farewell discourse, where the promise of the Spirit receives much emphasis. What he's saying is, in John 14 to 16, when Jesus told them that the Spirit was coming, he described to them the effects that the coming of the Spirit would have. And none of those effects show up in the rest of John's gospel 
after Jesus tells them, receive the Holy Spirit. The commentator goes on. If John 20 verse 22 is understood to be the Johannine Pentecost, John's Pentecost, it must frankly be admitted, here it is, that the results are desperately disappointing. That's point number one. Hope you still have your thinking hat on. Second, everybody agrees. I told you the commentators didn't have a consensus. Everybody agrees, and I think you will too, that there's at least some element of symbolism in the text. He's breathing on them. Surely that's some sort of symbolic representation. Maybe his breathing on them, well, his breathing, I'll come back to that. It may harken back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, a text which you'll remember, where it says, quote, he, God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So God forms Adam out of the dust of the ground, and then he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. That word in John 20, Jesus breathed, and in Genesis 2-7, in the Greek translation, it's the same Greek word. And it's a very uncommon Greek word. It's only once found in the pages of the New Testament and only seven times found in the entire Greek Old Testament. So it's not a common word. Maybe, maybe John is alluding to the passage in Genesis chapter 2. Maybe John's trying to paint a picture of Jesus as giving not only physical life, but Jesus is the giver of eternal life, the spirit life. Didn't Jesus do something like that? That sort of utilization of symbolism in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well? He, he told her, he who drinks of this water will thirst again, but he who drinks of the water that I'll give him will never thirst, but it will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. So the water is symbolic. There's the earthy water that you drink, and he says, oh, but there's something better, something that that water symbolizes that's better. You'll never thirst. Or how about the bread in John chapter 6, the bread of life discourse? He said there, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So again, earthy bread, you eat it to stay alive, but then there's this bread of God that comes down from heaven and gives true life to the world. There's a lot of symbolism present in John's gospel. And so maybe in our sermon text, you might summarize Jesus' meaning like this. Just like the material bread just like the material water and just like the material breath that filled Adam's lungs. You need more than merely that air, that breath. Man, you, needs the very breath and spirit of God to fill him up with eternal life from the inside out. What's the point of point two? Point two here is that the symbolism is revved up to the max. There's symbolism, a great deal of it. Third, this is where you really, I hope you have a really big thinking cap to wear today. This is the, requires the biggest hat. Most translators render that phrase that, you, that your Bible no doubt does, breathed on them. Jesus breathed on them. The CSB 
is the only translation that has a footnote where they say it literally means, here's their quote, he breathed and said to them. They omitted in their footnote the words on them. The reason is those words are not in the Greek, on and them. You know, I don't talk about all this language stuff very much, but this one I think is important. It says that he breathed. That's all it says. And you could say that maybe the on them is implied, it's inherent in the word, but that just doesn't square up with the seven uses that are in the Greek Old Testament that I told you about. That word appears there. I'll give you an example to make it less obscure. Remember Genesis 2-7, when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life? The words into and his nostrils are in the text. They're not implied. They're specified. The words into and nostrils appear. But in our text, there is no on them. There's just he breathed. John's gospel says merely that Jesus breathed or took a deep breath or some have rendered it exhaled. And this is important because if he breathed on them, that suggests an actual, not merely symbolic, but an actual exchange. In the same way that in Genesis 2, God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and once that passage ends, Adam now has the breath of life. You see where I'm going? If he breathed into them the Holy Spirit, you have functionally two pouring, pourings out of the Holy Spirit, John 20 and Acts 2. But I'm suggesting that it's not more than symbolic. You could translate the passage. He took a deep breath and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Fourth and finally, Jesus tells the disciples, receive the Holy Spirit. It's a command, an imperative verb. Do it. Receive the Holy Spirit. And so you might say, well, if he told them in a command, receive the Holy Spirit, it's only logical to suppose that they indeed did, not just symbolism, but they did indeed receive the Holy Spirit. But in John 17, 5, Jesus prays and he says, Father, here's the imperative, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That's an imperative verb, a command, so to speak. I mean, in reverence, yes, but it's an imperative verb. Glorify me. That was in John 17, and that did not come for quite some time. His experience of what he gave in an imperative didn't come till later. So I'm suggesting that it's not without merit that in John 20, when Jesus tells the disciples, receive the Holy Spirit, it's not required that their experience of that receiving, the command they got, that it's not required that it happened immediately. All right, now, that was thinking cap time, and I'm gonna try and explain to you why I said all of that. I think there are really good reasons to conclude that what Jesus does in the disciples in our sermon text is to use, as he often does, 
material creation, think water, think bread, and now in this passage, think breath or air, to point symbolically to a deeper spiritual reality that awaits fulfillment. The commission that Jesus is delivering to the disciples will go hand in hand with the disciples being indwelt with the Spirit. They'll have newness of life in themselves and they'll be able to complete the mission that he's giving them. So in summary, Jesus' commission, everyone has agreed, no matter where you land on, are there sort of two phases to Pentecost or uh, is John 20, as I'm suggesting, symbolic and then Pentecost is the actual outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Everyone has agreed. I said the commentators haven't reached a consensus. They have reached a consensus that post-Acts chapter two, the disciples had the Holy Spirit. And the mission that he's sending them on is going to be that kind of mission. It's a new covenant mission where the disciples, the people of God, are full of the Holy Spirit. They're changed fundamentally from the inside out and they're empowered to do what God commanded them to do in spreading the gospel of Jesus. The mission is a Holy Spirit-enabled mission. The forgiveness of sins, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Jesus' mission for the disciples has to do with the forgiveness of sins and everybody in the room needs their sins forgiven. There's a massive problem and sin entails guilt. And guilt entails judgment. It's the reason that you have a conscience. What I mean by that is it's the reason that you feel bad when you do wrong things. That's called your conscience. And your conscience does have to be trained, but it is there to help you know that sin entails guilt, and guilt entails a certain judgment. But Jesus sends disciples out so that people could be forgiven of their sins. Their sins could be absolved. They could be released from their guilt before God. It would be like, one day, analogies all fall short, but it would be like the Memphis P Police Department putting out an announcement one day that all the people who have an, a warrant out for their arrest, they can all come in and that they will all be forgiven. Now, I know the analogy falls short because of justice and I know, I know all that, but imagine what you would be like if you knew your sins could be forgiven and it would be right. That's the mission that Jesus is sending his disciples on. He had said, it is finished. Nothing is lacking for God to give forgiveness. But maybe if when you, like me, read verse 23, you bristle a little and you say, who can forgive sins but God alone? What is Jesus investing in his disciples? Are they the sole arbiters with sovereign authority to give and to take away forgiveness at will? as they please? Is that what he means in the text? Well, that's certainly not how they acted when you go and you read Acts and when you go and you read their epistles that they wrote. In the Gospel of John, how, how do you know who's forgiven and who's not? Who's forgiven? Who gains eternal life? Who becomes a child of God? Who doesn't die in their sins? John 8. 
The answer to all these questions is the same. There is only one answer, and it's those who believe. John 1, 12 and 13 make it really, really clear and notice that it doesn't depend on any man, including the disciples. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who, here's the word, believe in his name. That's the positive. Here's the negative. Who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, and then insert the disciples, nor of the will of man, but of God. So those who believe. So if he's not saying that the disciples are sovereignly in charge of issuing forgiveness at their own will, what is he saying? He's saying something. What does he mean? Well, I think A.T. Robertson, about 100 years ago, got it right. He said, quote, what he commits to the disciples and to us is the power and privilege of giving assurance of the forgiveness of sins by God by correctly announcing, here's the phrase, the terms of forgiveness. The idea is that when the disciples go about preaching the gospel of the crucified and risen Messiah, they're not yahoos who came out of some hole in a rock somewhere. They're sent by God and that the message that they have actually does result when believed in forgiveness by the one who sent them. So imagine a great king of old sitting in his giant stone castle and in one corner of his kingdom, a rebellion is born, a mutiny, and they come and they war against him, but he's able to push them back out, drive them out of the border, and the rebels become exiles in a foreign land. He could send his armies to search them out, hunt them down, and destroy them. But instead, he gathers 10 of his closest friends and he sends them as delegates. And he says, I want these men forgiven. I don't want them crushed, I want them forgiven. And right before they leave, he tells the delegates these words. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. You see what I mean. The delegates don't have authority except for the delegated authority that the king gave them to offer forgiveness, the terms of forgiveness. That's what happens in the preaching of the gospel. We have no sovereign authority in ourselves, but God has vested authority in human beings to proclaim his good news and forgiveness in his name. That's an amazing thought. That when little us with our clay feet and our faltering lips stand and say, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. When someone like me or like you stands and says that, God himself is behind it all, offering complete forgiveness, complete absolution, wiping away perfectly all the wrong, the debt for the wrong that you've done. It's not a man's gospel. It's what Paul talks like in Galatians. It's not, I didn't receive this from any man. I received it from God himself. But God chooses to use men to get the gospel out. And it's the same with the authority. He doesn't only tell them forgiveness. He says, if you retain the sins of any, 
They've been retained, so to sit under preaching where some preacher stands and he tells you this is the message of God about the Messiah crucified and risen, and you do not believe, like what I said, John says repeatedly, is the message of how people are forgiven, and you reject the man's message, you're not rejecting the man's message, you're rejecting the God who sent him, because he gave the message and he sent the man. There are so many implications for how to live in light of this text. There are more than we can touch. I began by talking about the glory of resurrection, resurrection life as folded into creation, as intertwined into creation. The first implication is just simply when you live, when you go to bed, when you get up at night, when the seasons change, when the seeds burst out of the ground, say, you are a God of resurrection glory. Let it take you back to the true glory, not just the copy, but the true glory, the resurrected Jesus. How about joy? I said the disciples rejoiced, they were overjoyed. Just ask a question, give you a second to think about it. When is the last time that you rejoiced? Maybe you say, it's not my personality. Or maybe you say, my circumstances are too difficult. But I say that everybody who has the Holy Spirit has at least in some measure the second fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Joy transcends all people types because the Holy Spirit fills all people types. And the same Jesus is the same for all people types. But also joy is in the midst of sorrow. I said, my circumstances are too difficult. I'm not talking about happiness. That's why I'm not talking only about inner tranquility or a superficial happiness like ease. I'm talking about in suffering. I have joy because I have Christ. The disciples, if, you're not a, if, you, if you haven't rejoiced in a long time, the disciples rejoiced when one thing happened and it's when they saw the Lord. So if you'll see him, you won't have to try to rejoice. It's not the rejoicing that you're after. When you see him, you will rejoice. You'll have joy that can't be shaken. Or how about fear? The disciples were afraid of the Jews until they saw the risen Jesus. They had a bigger fear, as Jesus says, elsewhere. They were in his presence, and they weren't afraid of death. You can't be afraid of death if you're in the presence of the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. You can't fear death when you're in the presence of the man who just conquered it. And this is where I'll leave us. Lordship. I said before that resurrection life is better, it has more glory than life that doesn't follow death. The king, Jesus, has conquered death. He's issued marching orders to the disciples in John 20 and to you today. He's been doing this for the last 2,000 years. The king, as the song says, the king in all his glory, in all his beauty. He's been sending his people 
as his delegates to announce his message of his own death and resurrection and the offer of forgiveness if they will but turn from sin and believe. He's been doing that for the last 2,000 years and that's where I leave you. Tell somebody. Tell them that you were sent by the risen king to give them good news that their sins can be forgiven because of what he accomplished when he got up from the dead. Tell somebody and trust God to give life, to bring a dead listener back to new life. Let's pray.